Section 2 from the Overture of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. From Remembrance of Things Past, translated by Scott Moncrief. Section 2. But those evenings, when Mama spent so short a time in my room, were sweet indeed, compared to those on which we had guests to dinner, and therefore she did not come at all. Our guests were practically limited to Monsieur Swann, who, apart from a few passing strangers, was almost the only person who ever came to the house at Cambrai, sometimes to a neighborly dinner, but less frequently since his unfortunate marriage, as my family did not care to receive his wife, and sometimes after dinner, uninvited. On those evenings when, as we sat in front of the house beneath the big chestnut tree, and round the iron table, we heard from the far end of the garden, not the large and noisy rattle which heralded and deafened as he approached, with its ferruginous, interminable, frozen sound, any member of the household who had put it out of action, by coming in without ringing, but the double peal, timid, oval, gilded, of the visitor's bell. Every one would at once exclaim, A visitor! Who in the world can it be? But they knew quite well, that it could only be Monsieur Swann. My great-aunt, speaking in a loud voice, to set an example, in a tone which she endeavoured to make sound natural, would tell others not to whisper so, that nothing could be more unpleasant for a stranger coming in, who would be led to think that people were saying things about him which he was not meant to hear and then my grandmother would be sent out as a scout, always happy to find an excuse for an additional turn in the garden, which she would utilize to remove, surreptitiously as she passed, the stakes of a rose-tree, or two, so as to make the roses look a little more natural, as a mother might run her hand through her boy's hair, after the barber had smoothed it down, to make it stick out properly round his head. And there we would all stay, hanging on the words which would fall from my grandmother's lips when she brought us back her report of the enemy, as though there had been some uncertainty among a vast number of possible invaders. And then, soon after, my grandfather would say, I can hear Swan's voice. And indeed, one could tell him only by his voice, for it was difficult to make out his face, with its arched nose and green eyes, under a high forehead fringed with fair, almost red hair, dressed in the Bresson style, because in the garden we used as little light as possible, so as not to attract mosquitoes. And I would slip away, as though not going for anything in particular, to tell them to bring out the syrups for my grandmother made a great point, thinking it nicer 
of their not being allowed to seem anything out of the ordinary, which we kept for visitors only. Although a far younger man, M. Swann was very much attached to my grandfather, who had been an intimate friend, in his time, of Swann's father, an excellent but an eccentric man, in whom the least little thing would, it seemed, often check the flow of his spirits, and divert the current of his thoughts. Several times in the course of a year I would hear my grandfather tell at table the story, which never varied, of the behavior of M. Swann the Elder upon the death of his wife, by whose bedside he had watched day and night. My grandfather, who had not seen him for a long time, hastened to join him at the Swann's family property on the outskirts of Cambrai, and managed to entice him for a moment, weeping profusely, out of the death-chamber, so that he should not be present when the body was laid in its coffin. They took a turn or two in the park, where there was a little sunshine. Suddenly M. Swann seized my grandfather by the arm and cried, "'Oh, my dear friend, how fortunate we are to be walking here together on such a charming day! Don't you see how pretty they are, all these trees? My hawthorns, and my new pond, on which you have never congratulated me. You look as glum as a nightcap. Don't you feel this little breeze? And, ah, whatever you may say, it's good to be alive all the same, my dear Amadie. And then, abruptly, the memory of his dead wife returned to him, and probably thinking it too complicated to inquire into how, at such a time, he could have allowed himself to be carried away by an impulse of happiness, he confined himself to a gesture which he habitually employed whenever any perplexing question came into his mind. That is, he passed his hand across his forehead, dried his eyes, and wiped his glasses. And he could never be consoled for the loss of his wife, but used to say to my grandfather, during the two years for which he survived her. It's a funny thing, now. I very often think of my poor wife, but I cannot think of her very much at any one time. Often, but a little at a time, like poor old Swan, became one of my grandfather's favorite phrases, which he would apply to all kinds of things. And I should have assumed that this father of Swann's had been a monster if my grandfather, whom I regarded as a better judge than myself, and whose word was my law, and often led me in the long run to pardon offences which I should have been inclined to condemn, had not gone on to exclaim, But, after all, he had a heart of gold. For many years, albeit, and especially before his marriage, M. Swann the Younger came often to see them at Cambrai. My great-aunt and grandparents never suspected that he had entirely ceased to live in the kind of society which his family had frequented, or that, under the sort of incognito which the name of Swann gave him among us, they were harboring, 
with the complete innocence of a family of honest innkeepers, who have in their midst some distinguished highwaymen, and never know it, one of the smartest members of the jockey club, a particular friend of the Comte de Paris, and of the Prince of Wales, and one of the men most sought after in the aristocratic world of the Faubert Saint-Germain. Our utter ignorance of the brilliant part which Swann was playing in the world of fashion was, of course, due in part to his own reserve and discretion, but also to the fact that middle-class people in those days took what was almost a Hindu view of society, which they held to consist of sharply defined castes, so that everyone at his birth found himself called to that station in life which his parents already occupied, and nothing, except the chance of a brilliant career, or of a good marriage, could extract you from that station, or admit you to a superior caste. Monsieur Swann, the father, had been a stockbroker, and so young Swann found himself immured for life, in a caste where one's fortune, as in a list of taxpayers, vary between such and such limits of income. We knew the people with whom his father had associated, and so we knew his own associates, the people with whom he was in a position to mix. If he knew other people besides, those were youthful acquaintances on whom the old friends of the family, like my relatives, shut their eyes all the more good-naturedly, that Swann himself, after he was left an orphan, still came most faithfully to see us. But we would have been ready to wager that the people outside our acquaintance, whom Swann knew were of the sort to whom he would not have dared to raise his hat, had he met them while he was walking with ourselves. Had there been such a thing as a determination to apply to Swann a social coefficient peculiar to himself, as distinct from all the other sons of other stockbrokers in his father's position, his coefficient would have been rather lower than theirs, because, leading a very simple life, and having always had a craze for antiques and pictures, he now lived and piled up his collections in an old house which my grandmother longed to visit, but which stood on the Quai d'Orléans, a neighborhood in which my great-aunt thought it most degrading to be quartered. "'Are you really a connoisseur now?' she would say to him. "'I ask, for your own sake, as you are likely to have fakes palmed off on you by the dealers,' for she did not, in fact, endow him with any critical faculty, and had no great opinion of the intelligence of a man who, in conversation, would avoid serious topics, and showed a very dull preciseness, not only when he gave us kitchen recipes, going into the most minute details, but even when my grandmother's sisters were talking to him about art. When challenged by them to give an opinion, or to express his admiration for some picture, he would remain almost impolitely silent, and would then make amends by furnishing, if he could, some fact or other about the gallery in which the picture was hung, or the date at which it had been painted. 
but as a rule he would content himself with trying to amuse us by telling us the story of his latest adventure and he would have a fresh story for us on every occasion with someone whom we ourselves knew such as the cambray chemist or our cook or our coachman these stories certainly used to make my great-aunt laugh but she could never tell whether that was on account of the absurd parts which swann invariably made himself play in the adventures or of the wit that he showed in telling us of them it is easy to see that you are a regular character monsieur swann as she was the only member of our family who could be described as a trifle common she would always take care to remark to strangers when swann was mentioned that he could easily if he had wished to have lived in the boulevard houseman or the avenue de l'opera and that he was the son of old mr swann who must have left four or five million francs but that it was a fad of his a fad which moreover she thought was bound to amuse other people so much that in paris when monsieur swann called on new year's day bringing her a little packet of marron glace she never failed if there were strangers in the room to say to him well monsieur swann and do you still live next door to the bonded vaults so as to be sure of not missing your train when you go to lyon and she would peep out of the corner of her eye over her glasses at the other visitors but if any one had suggested to my aunt that this swann who in his capacity as the son of old monsieur swann was fully qualified to be received by any of the upper middle class the most respected barristers and solicitors of paris though he was perhaps a trifle inclined to let this hereditary privilege go into abeyance had another almost secret existence of a wholly different kind that when he left our house in paris saying that he must go home to bed he would no sooner have turned the corner than he would stop retrace his steps and be off to some drawing-room on whose like no stockbroker or associate of stockbrokers had ever set eyes that would have seemed to my aunt as extraordinary as to a woman of wider reading the thought of being herself on terms of intimacy with aristaeus of knowing that he would after he finished his conversation with her plunge deep into the realms of thetis into an empire veiled from mortal eyes in which virgil depicts him as being received with open arms or to be content with an image more likely to have occurred to her for she had seen it painted on the plates we used for biscuits at cambray as the thought of having had to dinner ali baba who as soon as he found himself alone and unobserved would make his way into the cave resplendent with its unsuspected treasures one day when he had come to see us after dinner in paris and had begged pardon for being in evening clothes francoise when he had gone told us that she had got it from his coachman that he had been dining with the princess 
A pretty sort of princess, drawled my aunt. I know them. And she shrugged her shoulders without raising her eyes from her knitting. Serenely ironical. Altogether, my aunt used to treat him with scant ceremony, since she was of the opinion that he ought to feel flattered by our invitations. She thought it only right and proper that he should never come to see us in summer without a basket of peaches or raspberries from his garden, and that from each of his visits to Italy he would bring back some photographs of old masters for me. It seemed quite natural, therefore, to send to him whenever we wanted a recipe for some special sauce, or for a pineapple salad for one of our big dinner parties, to which he himself would not be invited, not seeming of sufficient importance to be served up to new friends who might be in our house for the first time. If the conversation turned upon the princes of the House of France, gentlemen, you and I will never know, will we, and don't want to, do we? My great-aunt would say tartly to Swann, who had perhaps a letter from Twickingham in his pocket. She would make him play accompaniments, and turn over music on evenings when my grandmother's sister sang. Manipulating this creature, so rare and refined at other times and in other places, with the rough simplicity of a child, who will play with some curio from the cabinet no more carefully than if it were a penny toy. Certainly the swan who was a familiar figure in all the clubs of those days differed hugely from the swan created in my great-aunt's mind, when, of an evening, in our little garden at Cambrai, after the two shy peals had sounded from the gate, she would vitalize by injecting into it everything she had ever heard about the Swan family, the vague and unrecognizable shape which began to appear, with my grandmother in its wake, against a background of shadows, and could at last be identified by the sound of its voice. But then, even in the most insignificant details of our daily life, none of us can be said to constitute a material whole which is identical for every one, and need only be turned up like a page in an account-book, or the record of a will. Our social personality is created by the thoughts of other people. Even the simple act which we describe as seeing someone we know is, to some extent, an intellectual process. We pack the physical outline of the creature we see with all the ideas we have already formed about him, and in the complete picture of him, which we compose in our minds, those ideas have certainly the principal place. In the end, they come to fill out so completely the curve of his cheeks, to follow so exactly the line of his nose, they blend so harmoniously in the sound of his voice, that these seem to be no more than a transparent envelope, so that each time we see the face, or hear the voice, it is our own ideas of him which we recognize and to which we listen. And so, no doubt, from the swan they had built up for their own purposes, 
My family had left out, in their ignorance, a whole crowd of the details of his daily life in the world of fashion, details by means of which other people, when they met him, saw all the graces enthroned in his face, and stopping at the line of his arched nose, as at a natural frontier. But they contrived also to put into a face from which its distinction had been evicted, a face vacant and roomy as an untenanted house, to plant in the depths of its unvalued eyes a lingering sense, uncertain, but not unpleasing, half-memory and half-oblivion, of idle hours spent together after our weekly dinners, round the card-table or in the garden, during our companionable country life. Our friend's bodily frame had been so well lined with this sense, and with various earlier memories of his family, that their own special swan had become, to my people, a complete and living creature, so that even now I have the feeling of leaving someone I know for another quite different person when, going back in memory, I pass from the swan whom I knew later, and more intimately to this earlier swan, this early swan in whom I can distinguish the charming mistakes of my childhood, and who, incidentally, is less like his successor than he is like the other people I knew at the time, as though one's life were a series of galleries in which all the portraits of any one period had a marked family likeness, the same, so to speak, tonality. This early swan, abounding in leisure, fragrant with the scent of the great chestnut tree, of baskets of raspberries, and a sprig of tarragon. And yet, one day, when my grandmother had gone to ask a favour of a lady whom she had known at the Sacre Coeur, and with whom, because of our caste theory, she had not cared to keep up any degree of intimacy, in spite of several common interests, the Marquise de Ville Parisis, of the famous house of Bouillon, this lady had said to her, I think you know Monsieur Swann very well. He is a great friend of my nephew's, the de Lomme. My grandmother had returned from the call full of praise for the house, which overlooked some gardens, and in which Madame de Villaparisis had advised her to rent a flat, and also for a repairing tailor and his daughter, who kept a little shop in the courtyard, into which she had gone to ask them to put a stitch in her skirt, which she had torn on the staircase. My grandmother had found these people perfectly charming. The girl, she said, was a jewel, and the tailor a most distinguished man, the finest she had ever seen. For in her eyes distinction was a thing wholly independent of social position. She was in ecstasies over some answer the tailor had made, saying to Mama, Savigny could not have said it better and, by way of contrast, of a nephew of Madame de Villaparisis, whom she had met at the house, my dear, he is so common. 
Now, the effect of that remark about Swann had been not to raise him in my great-aunt's estimation, but to lower Madame de Villeparisis. It appeared that the deference which, on my grandmother's authority, we owed to Madame de Villeparisis imposed on her the reciprocal obligation to do nothing that would render her less worthy of our regard, and that she had failed in her duty in becoming aware of Swann's existence, and in allowing members of her family to associate with him. How should she know Swann? A lady who, you always made out, was related to Marshal McMahon. This view of Swann's social atmosphere, which prevailed in my family, seemed to be confirmed, later on, by his marriage with a woman of the worst class, you might almost say, a fast woman, whom, to do him justice, he never attempted to introduce to us, for he continued to come to us alone, though he came more and more seldom, but from whom they thought they could establish, on the assumption that he had found her there, the circle, unknown to them, in which he ordinarily moved. But on one occasion my grandfather read in a newspaper that M. Swann was one of the most faithful attendants at the Sunday luncheons given by the Duc de X, whose father and uncle had been among our most prominent statesmen in the reign of Louis-Philippe. Now, my grandfather was curious to learn all the details which might help him to take a mental share in the private lives of men like Molay, the Douai Pasquier, or the Duke of Broglier. He was delighted to find that Swann associated with people who had known them. My great-aunt, however, interpreted this piece of news in a sense discreditable to Swann, for anyone who chose his associates outside the caste in which he had been born and bred, outside his proper station, was condemned to utter degradation in her eyes. It seemed to her that such a one abdicated all claim to enjoy the fruits of those friendly relations with people of good position, which prudent parents cultivate and store up for their children's benefit. For my great-aunt had actually ceased to see the son of a lawyer, who we had known, because he had married a highness, and had thereby stepped down, in her eyes, from the respectable position of a lawyer's son, to that of those adventurers, upstart footmen, or stable-boys, mostly, to whom we read that queens have sometimes shown their favours. She objected, therefore, to my grandfather's plan of questioning Swann, when next he came to dine with us, about these people whose friendship with him we had discovered. On the other hand, my grandmother's two sisters— elderly spinsters, who shared her nobility of character, but lacked her intelligence, declared that they could not conceive what pleasure their brother-in-law could find in talking about such trifles. These were ladies of lofty ambition, who, for that reason, were incapable of taking the least interest in what might be called the pinchbeck things of life 
even when they had an historic value, or, generally speaking, in anything that was not directly associated with some object aesthetically precious. So complete was their negation of interest in anything which seemed directly or indirectly a part of our everyday life, that their sense of hearing, which had gradually come to understand its own futility when the tone of the conversation at the dinner-table became frivolous or merely mundane, without the two old ladies being able to guide it back to the topic dear to themselves, would leave its receptive channels unemployed, so effectively that they were actually becoming atrophied. So that if my grandfather wished to attract the attention of the two sisters, he would have to make use of some alarm signals, as mad doctors adopt in dealing with their distracted patients, as by beating several times on a glass with the blade of a knife, fixing them at the same time with a sharp word and a compelling glance. Violent methods which the said doctors are apt to bring with them into their everyday life among the sane, either from force of professional habit, or because they think the whole world a trifle mad. Their interest grew, however, when, the day before Swan was to dine with us, and when he had made them a special present of a case of Asti, my great-aunt, who had in her hand a copy of the Figaro, in which, to the name of a picture, then on view in a Corot exhibition, were added the words, from the collection of Monsieur Charles Swann, asked, Did you see that Swann is mentioned in the Figaro? But I have always told you, said my grandmother, that he had plenty of taste. You would, of course, retorted my great-aunt, say anything just to seem different from us. For, knowing that my grandmother never agreed with her, and not being quite confident that it was her own opinion, which the rest of us invariably endorsed, she wished to extort from us a wholesale condemnation of my grandmother's views, against which she hoped to force us into solidarity with her own. But we sat silent. My grandmother's sisters, having expressed a desire to mention to Swann this reference to him in the Figaro, my great-aunt dissuaded them. Whenever she saw in others an advantage, however trivial, which she herself lacked, she would persuade herself that it was no advantage at all, but a drawback, and would pity so as not to have to envy them. I don't think that would please him at all. I know very well I should hate to see my name printed like that, as large as life, in the paper, and I shouldn't feel at all flattered if anyone spoke to me about it. She did not, however, put any very great pressure upon my grandmother's sisters, for they, in their horror of vulgarity, had brought to such a fine art the concealment of a personal allusion in a wealth of ingenious circumlocution, that it would often pass unnoticed even by the person to whom it was addressed. As for my mother, her only thought was of managing to 
induce my father to consent to speak to Swann, not of his wife, but of his daughter, whom he worshipped, and for whose sake it was understood that he had ultimately made this unfortunate marriage. You need only say a word. Just ask him how she is. It must be so very hard for him. My father, however, was annoyed. No, no, you have the most absurd ideas. It would be utterly ridiculous. But the only one of us in whom the prospect of Swann's arrival gave rise to an unhappy foreboding was myself. And that was because on the evenings when there were visitors, or just Monsieur Swann in the house, Mamma did not come up to my room. I did not, at that time, have dinner with the family. I came out to the garden after dinner, and at nine I said good-night and went to bed. But on these evenings I used to dine earlier than the others, and to come in afterwards and sit at table until eight o'clock, when it was understood that I must go upstairs. That frail and precious kiss which Mamma used always to leave upon my lips when I was in bed and just going to sleep, I had to take with me from the dining-room to my own, and to keep inviolate all the time that it took me to undress without letting its sweet charm be broken, without letting its volatile essence diffuse itself and evaporate. And just on those very evenings when I must needs take most pains to receive it with due formality, I had to snatch it, to seize it instantly and in public, without even having the time or being properly free to apply to what I was doing the punctiliousness which madmen use who compel themselves to exclude all other thoughts from their minds while they are shutting a door, so that when the sickness of uncertainty sweeps over them, they can again triumphantly face and overcome it with the recollection of the precise moment in which the door was shut. We were all in the garden when the double peal of the gate-bell sounded shyly. Everyone knew that it must be Swann, and yet they looked at one another inquiringly, and sent my grandmother scouting. "'See that you thank him intelligibly for the wine,' my grandfather warned his two sisters-in-law. "'You know how good he is, and it is a huge case.' "'Now don't start whispering,' said my great-aunt. How would you like to come into a house and find everybody muttering to themselves? Ah, there's Monsieur Swann, cried my father. Let's ask him if he thinks it will be fine to-morrow. My mother fancied that a word from her would wipe out all the unpleasantness which my family had contrived to make Swann feel since his marriage. She found an opportunity to draw him aside for a moment. But I followed her. I could not bring myself to let her go out of reach of me, while I felt that in a few minutes I should have to leave her in the dining-room, and go up to my bed without the consoling thought 
as on ordinary evenings, that she would come up later to kiss me. Now, Monsieur Swann, she said, do tell me about your daughter. I am sure she shows a great taste for fine things like her papa. Come along and sit down here with us, all on the veranda, said my grandfather, coming up to him. My mother had to abandon the quest, but managed to extract from the restriction itself a further refinement of thought, as great poets do, when the tyranny of rhyme forces them into the discovery of their finest lines. We can talk about her later again when we are by ourselves, she said, or rather whispered to Swann. It is only a mother who can understand. I am sure that hers would agree with me. And so we all sat down round the iron table. I should have liked not to think of the hours of anguish which I should have to spend that evening alone in my room, without the possibility of going to sleep. I tried to convince myself that they were of no importance, really, since I should have forgotten them next morning, and to fix my mind on thoughts of the future, which would carry me, as on a bridge, across the terrifying abyss that yawned at my feet. But my mind, strained by this foreboding, distended like the look which I shot at my mother, would not allow any other impression to enter. Thoughts did, indeed, enter it, but only on the condition that they left behind them every element of beauty, or even of quaintness, by which I might have been distracted or beguiled. As a surgical patient, by means of a local anaesthetic, can look on with a clear consciousness while an operation is being performed upon him, and yet feel nothing, I could repeat to myself some favorite lines, or watch my grandfather attempting to talk to Swann about the Duc d'Audrifet Pasquier, without being able to kindle any emotion from one, or amusement from the other. Hardly had my grandfather begun to question Swann about that orator, when one of my grandmother's sisters, in whose ears the question echoed, seemed like a solemn but untimely silence which her natural politeness bade her interrupt, addressed the other with, Just fancy, Flora, I met a young Swedish governess to-day, who told me some most interesting things about the cooperative movement in Scandinavia. We really must have her to dine here one evening. To be sure, said her sister, Flora, but I haven't wasted my time either. I met such a clever old gentleman at Monsieur Venteux's, who knows Maubin quite well, and Maubin has told him every little thing about how he gets up his parts. It is the most interesting thing I ever heard. He is a neighbor of Monsieur Venteux, and I never knew, and he is so nice besides. Monsieur Venteux is not the only one who has nice neighbors, cried my aunt Celine, in a voice which seemed loud, because she was so timid, and seemed force, 
because she had been planning the little speech for so long, darting, as she spoke, what she called a significant glance at Swann. And my Aunt Flora, who realized that this veiled utterance was Celine's way of thanking Swann intelligibly for the asti, looked at him with a blend of congratulation and irony, either just, because she wished to underline her sister's little epigram, or because she envied Swann his having inspired it, or merely because she imagined that he was embarrassed, and could not help having a little fun at his expense. "'I think it would be worth while,' Flora went on, "'to have this old gentleman to dinner. "'When you get him upon Maubin, or Madame Materna, "'he will talk for hours on end.' "'That must be delightful,' sighed my grandfather, "'in whose mind nature had, unfortunately, "'forgotten to include any capacity whatsoever "'for becoming passionately interested "'in the cooperative movement among the ladies of Sweden, "'or in the methods employed by Maubin to get up his parts, "'just as it had forgotten to endow my grandmother's two sisters "'with a grain of that precious salt "'which one has oneself to add to taste, "'in order to extract any savour "'from a narrative of the private life of Molay "'or of the Comte de Paris. "'I say,' exclaimed Swann to my grandfather, "'what I was going to tell you "'has more to do than you might think "'with what you were asking me just now, "'for in some respects "'there has been very little change. "'I came across a passage in Saint-Simon "'this morning, which would have amused you. "'It is in the volume which covers his mission to Spain, "'not one of the best, "'little more, in fact, than a journal, "'but at least it is a journal "'wonderfully well written.' which fairly distinguishes it from the devastating journalism that we feel bound to read in these days, morning, noon, and night. I do not agree with you. There are some days when I find reading the papers very pleasant indeed, my Aunt Flora broke in, to show Swann that she had read the note about his Corot in the Figaro. Yes, Aunt Celine went one better, when they write about things or people in whom we are interested. I don't deny it, answered Swann in some bewilderment. The fault I find with our journalism is that it forces us to take an interest in some fresh triviality, or other, every day, whereas only three or four books in a lifetime give us anything that is of real importance. Suppose that, every morning, when we tore the wrapper off our paper, with fevered hands, a transmutation were to take place, and we were able to find inside it, oh, I don't know, shall we say, Pascal's Pensée. He articulated the title with an ironic emphasis, so as not to appear pedantic. And then, in the gilt and tooled volumes, which we open once in ten years, he went on, showing that contempt for the things of this world, which some men of the world like to affect. 
we should read that the queen of the Hélène had arrived at Cannes, or that the Princesse de Léon had given a fancy dress ball. In that way we should arrive at the right proportion between information and publicity. But, at once regretting that he had allowed himself to speak, even in jest of serious matters, he added, ironically, We are having a most entertaining conversation. I cannot think why we climb to these lofty summits, and then turning to my grandfather. Well, Saint-Simon tells how Mauvrier had had the audacity to offer his hand to his sons. You remember how he says of Mauvrier, Never did I find in that coarse bottle anything but ill-humour, boorishness, and folly. Coarse or not, I know bottles in which there is something very different, said Flora briskly, feeling bound to thank Swann, as well as her sister, since the present of Asti had been addressed to them both. Selene began to laugh. Swann was puzzled, but went on. I cannot say whether it was his ignorance or a trap, writes Saint-Simon. He wished to give his hand to my children. I noticed it in time to prevent him. My grandfather was already in ecstasies over ignorance or a trap. But Miss Celine, the name of Saint-Simon, a man of letters, having arrested the complete paralysis of her sense of hearing, had grown angry. What? You admire that, do you? Well, it is clever enough. But what is the point of it? Does he mean that one man isn't as good as another? What difference can it make whether he is a duke or a groom, so long as he is intelligent and good? He had a fine way of bringing up his children, your Saint-Simon, if he didn't teach them to shake hands with all honest men. Really, and truly, it's abominable, and you dare to quote it. And my grandfather, utterly depressed, realizing how futile it would be for him, against this opposition, to attempt to get Swann to tell him the stories which would have amused him, murmured to my mother, "'Just tell me again that line of yours which always comforts me so much on these occasions. Oh, yes, what virtues, Lord, thou makest us abhor!' Good, that is very good. I never took my eyes off my mother. I knew that when they were at table I should not be permitted to stay there for the whole of the dinner-time, and that Mamma, for fear of annoying my father, would not allow me to give her in public the series of kisses that she would have had in my room. And so I promised myself that in the dining-room, as they began to eat and drink, and as I felt the hour approach, I would put beforehand into this kiss, which was bound to be so brief and stealthy in execution, everything that my own efforts could put into it, would look out very carefully, first the exact spot on her cheek where I would imprint it, and would so prepare my thoughts 
that I might be able, thanks to these mental preliminaries, to consecrate the whole of the minute Mamma would allow me to the sensation of her cheek against my lips. As a painter, who can have his subject for short sittings only, prepares his palette, and from what he remembers, and from rough notes, does in advance everything which he possibly can do in the sitter's absence. But, to-night, before the dinner-bell had sounded, my grandfather said with unconscious cruelty, The little man looks tired. He'd better go up to bed. Besides, we are dining late to-night. And my father, who was less scrupulous than my grandmother or mother in observing the letter of a treaty, went on, Yes, run along to bed with you. I would have kissed Mamma then and there, but at that moment the dinner bell rang. No, no, leave your mother alone. You've said good night quite enough. These exhibitions are absurd. Go on upstairs. End of section two from the overture of Swan's Way. Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California, for LibriVox, winter 2007.